I was yelling in my regulator, in my mouth, you know, every five seconds or so, just to try and just furiously swim as fast as I could. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Up Up, a podcast about resilience and getting back up. Today, I'm joined by Alex Pruden, who I think has had a pretty pretty interesting career in the United States military. He uh, graduated from West Point in 2008. Thanks for joining us, Alex. Yeah, thanks a lot for letting me be here. So, Alex, you're a student here at the Stanford Graduate School of Business, finishing up your first year of the MBA program. Tell us a little bit about yourself. What brings you here? Uh, yeah, so as you mentioned, uh, I was in the military, so I had a nine-year uh, career in the U.S. Army Infantry and Special Forces. Um, and towards the end of my time in Special Forces, uh, it was a three-year commitment to go to Army Special Forces. And uh, right at the end of that three years, I was at a crossroads. I just had a son. My wife and I just had our first son. And uh, as you probably can imagine, a career in Special Forces is not one that lends itself much to being present um, as much as I wanted to uh, as a father. And so I made a difficult decision to leave the military because I actually really enjoyed my career and I feel like I had gotten to a place where um, I, I, I was set up to continue to advance. But um, like I said, made the decision to leave and I thought about what to do next and decided to try and go back to school because I had the GI Bill benefits. Um, and so what I thought about what I wanted to do after the military that would excite me and motivate me just as much. I thought about doing something, you know, I wanted to do entrepreneurship. I wanted to start my own company. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I've always been interested in tech. So the, the, the marriage of entrepreneurship and tech, I mean, I think uh, among the business schools in the country, I mean, Stanford is one of the first that comes to mind. So that's what inspired me to apply here. And fortunately, I was, uh, I was, I was lucky to get in. And uh, I'm, I'm really enjoying my first year and learning quite a bit. So after college at West Point, 10 years in the Army, yeah, just shy of nine. Just shy of nine. Yep. Um, so that's that's been your only job. Uh, yeah. Aside from different jobs before West Point, I worked at Blockbuster Video, but I don't know <laughs> if anyone's counting that. That's a throwback. Yeah, yeah. They like to say around here that it's a uh, it's a badge of honor to be part of a failed company, and so <laughs> yeah. I guess I I earned mine in two thousand or whenever I was at Blockbuster Video, two thousand two. I guess that's amazing. That didn't make it on the the resume for applying to business school. No, it was on the second page, and they only let me have one page, so I had to cut it. It's hard. Yeah. Uh, So they call them special forces for a reason. Why are they special? Yeah, so generally the term special forces uh, is a little bit confusing to a lot of people, so I'll just take a second to clarify. So there's special operations forces, which is kind of the umbrella term for the entire U.S. military's, um, you know, elite unit community. Um, so there's, you know, within that umbrella, you've got the U.S. Navy SEALs. Um, you've got some Air Force pararescue men. Uh, you've got uh, Marine reconnaissance soldiers. Um, and then within that umbrella, actually, U.S. Army Special Forces is a specific unit with a specific type of mission. It's colloquially known as Green Berets. So the mission of the so the Green Berets were uh, established in the mid 1950s, and the idea was um, was a to create a unit uh, with soldiers who were just good soldiers in general. They were well rounded, and they had 
already proven themselves in combat or as soldiers elsewhere and uh, to assemble them into teams and then to send those teams overseas to work with foreign militaries in various capacities. Okay. Um, so the two most common capacities were uh, what's called foreign internal defense, which is where, you know, they go, you know, we go overseas and we train foreign militaries to help, um, you know, in, in counterinsurgency in places like Colombia, for example, against the FARC, or, you know, in Vietnam was, a, was, was one as well. And then the other mission that Special Forces does along that same theme is called unconventional warfare. And that is where they embed with local forces that are trying to overthrow um, a repressive or hostile government. And I think the best recent example is uh, 2001 Afghanistan, when actually, you know, when the Taliban was overthrown in, uh, you know, in, 2000, in 2001, that was the vanguard of the Northern Alliance soldiers that, uh, that kind of uh, retook that retook Kabul were led by Green Berets. So there's a new movie about that. Yeah, yeah, I haven't seen it yet, but uh, my my father actually my father was also a Green Beret back in uh, in the 80s, and so he he t- he saw it and said that I I have to check it out. So I'm looking forward to that. But you didn't plan to go into the military growing up. Not not initially. No, I well. I, when I was a when I was a little kid, I was interested in being a pilot. I I thought I wanted to be a a pilot, and my grandfather was actually an Air Force pilot, and so I mm. thought about wanting to do that. But I found out uh, as a kid that I had I, my vision wasn't very good, um, and so I felt like I, I wouldn't be able to. This was before the days where you know you had LASIK and everything, so I, I didn't know that I would be able to actually achieve that dream. So I kind of let let the military. Um, you know, out of my mind as far as a career choice. Just focus on Blockbuster instead. <laughs> That's right. Dedicate my life to Blockbuster. No, I, I actually, for a while, I was really into bodybuilding and stuff, uh, you know, you, it, and working out, like weightlifting in, in high school, I thought was really fun and interesting. So I thought I would be a personal trainer. And uh, and then when I was in high school, I actually was, um, I remember I was in history class when September 11th happened. And mm-hmm. so that kind of made me reframe um, what I wanted to do and how I wanted to structure my life. But I, the military was never, I, admittedly, I, I was never, you know, I didn't join the military with the intention of having an entire career. Gotcha. What, so post 9-11, you've joined the United States Army. Um, I think what I want to hone in on here a little bit, I, I think is kind of a little bit shiny in your story is the special forces training. What precipitated joining special forces? You had to already have been serving. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so I was uh, I, I graduated West Point in 2008, and I commissioned as an infantry officer. Um, There's a five-year commitment having gone to West Point. Yeah, yep, five-year commitment out of West Point, and I started out as an infantry officer, deployed to Afghanistan, um, where I was in the northeast part of the country and um, was, you know, participated in uh, some significant combat up there. And uh, and also was, you know, I had a front row seat in watching the attempts or, you know, the campaign to try and rebuild the country and particularly the security institutions, um, the Afghan police and armies. Um, and I remember thinking that, you know, it was, I, I didn't think it was the best use of resources for the United States to 
just spend its own blood and treasure in a foreign country. And I thought it would be better to try and help them help themselves, if that makes any sense. And so that very much um, that very much aligns with U.S. Army Special Forces, as I described. Um, you know, that's the whole idea. It's sort of like a force multiplier. They go and they train and they help and they advise and assist. And so rather, you know, coming back from Afghanistan and thinking about the people who I knew who, um, you know, either died or were wounded, I wanted to be part of a unit that could help prevent big deployments of American soldiers in the first place. So that's what motivated me to join uh, Special Forces. So I went in late 2011, went to the selection. So there's the, the basically Special Forces training, the way you get into it, you have to go to a selection. Sounds a little bit like the Hunger Games. <laughs> there were times where I was a little bit hungry. Sure. Um, but, uh, but yeah, no, it's, it's, it's mainly, it's, well, actually, it's, it's pretty comprehensive mm-hmm. test that basically looks at, um, at an individual soldier, uh, both their physical attributes and uh, their ability to complete physical tasks, and also their mental attributes and intellect, um, and then finally their ability to work as a team. So that the way that the selection is structured is the first week you're given a bunch of physical tests, um, runs of dif- different distances, um, you know, uh, various training events. And then also on top of that, you're tested academically. You get given an IQ test. There's a lot of psychological testing. The second week you, um, you basically go and you, you do orienteering, um, long distance like called land navigation. So you try mm-hmm. and navigate from point to point and the distances between points are are pretty far. I mean, you're covering anywhere between 20 and 25 miles um, a day Wow. Uh, with weight on your back. So, uh, and that goes from, from night and when it's still dark, you wake up and you start and you go all the way through the day until it gets dark again. And then you sleep for a couple hours and you do it again. So that's the second week. And then the third week they put you in teams and uh, you know, you've got different objectives where you have to take a bunch of heavy stuff basically and move it a number of kilometers or miles. Mm. And, uh, and so that's, that's uh, sort of the structure of the selection. And then if passing that and getting selected, you start the training process, which, um, you know, it's, it's a pretty wide range, but it's um, broken out by specialty. So I was an officer, so I was um, slated to be a detachment commander. So I had uh, officer-specific training in addition to language training um, and then um, some combat training. And then I also, at the very end, um, actually not at the very end, but later, there's, a, there's further training that you can do um, to go on to certain specialty teams that specialize in uh, certain methods of infiltration, such as underwater infiltration or uh, airborne infiltration. So I was fortunate enough to go after my first year of being in the special forces unit after completing the training, I was fortunate enough to get selected for an underwater infiltration team and complete um, what was probably the hardest phase of my, of my training, which was the, uh, the combat diver qualification course. So this is just to clarify, so you've already served, you've already seen battle, you've already been selected for special forces, you've already served in a special forces unit, and now this is the super special, very specific training. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> it's not the title of it. No, I mean, it sounds good, though. It's, it's, got, it's got a good <laughs> ring to sure. it. Um, no, I mean, so it's it has a reputation in the U.S. Army for being... Um, certainly one of the hardest, if not the hardest, uh, schools that you can attend just in terms of the attrition rate, historic attrition rate. Um, and how many, how many people don't make it through the training or what percentage? So you, there's a, there's basically, there's a four week 
well, first you have to get selected to go to the training. And okay. so that, that probably narrows down about 75% of people. Um, and then from that, there's a pre-training that you have to go to and complete, which lasts for two weeks. It simulates most of the events that you go through at that school for the first two weeks there. So you go through the pre-training and that probably knocks out another 50 to 60% of those. And then once you're at the actual school, uh, attending the training, which is in Key West, Florida, that probably knocks down anywhere between 25 and 50% of those who remain. So overall, I would say from the beginning of the pipeline to the end, it's probably between 10 and 15% that go and get to be combat divers. Wow. So why did you do all this difficult training? <laughs> um, yeah, so I, part, I guess it might be I'm, I'm partially a glutton for punishment. Uh, no, I, I, I think I just enjoy opportunities um, in which I have to prove myself. I find myself, or I found myself in the military um, wanting to, always wanting to strive for the next level, whether it was because I felt like as an officer that that's what I had to do to earn the respect of my soldiers, um, or whether that was just a personal thing that I, you know, I felt like I wanted to accomplish because I didn't want to leave anything on the table. Uh, during my career. I, I don't know what the mix is, but I'd say both of those um, probably affected my decision to volunteer for this. Um, and the other thing that really motivated me was because it was so selective, you had um, the the type of Green Beret that served on those uh, the team, which was the underwater infiltration teams, were very, I mean, they were incredibly professional and they were, they had the same personality type that I did. I mean, they, they wanted to do everything to, you know, basically to, to the 100% level and then some. Um, and so being around a group of people like that really attracted me and, and motivated me uh, mm -hmm. to, to try it for myself. So how was the training? <laughs> we, we talked about this before the interview, and I'm, I'm just curious to, to relive that a little bit. Yeah. Um, well, it, it was it was in, I think it's, but no, I can definitely say it was the hardest training that I did in the Army. And, uh, and I, I don't want to misrepresent um, the situation and pretend like I passed with flying colors. And I, I struggled to, uh, to complete it, mainly because I, you know, in most of my Army career, all the tests were physical, but they're often land-based. So it's running, it's walking with a heavy pack, um, you know, it's doing push-ups and pull-ups. And, and I'm, I think I, I'm fortunate to be built to be pretty naturally good at a lot of those things. And so I, you know, at worst, most in most of my previous training, I was in the middle of the pack and I could usually, you know, finish in the top 10% or higher. Um, when you say naturally good, I'm, I'm curious, what do you, what do you mean by that? Uh, I just compared to most of my peers, I, I think, uh, you know, if I'm built relatively, I've got a relatively light frame, so mm -hmm. I don't, you know, I, I'm not a heavy set guy naturally. So running, for example, is, you know, I don't, I can get away with, with, you know, eating a hamburger and, or skipping a couple runs and still being able to do pretty good. So I feel like, uh, and also growing up, you know, I did, I, I grew up in the desert, so I, yeah. I, I didn't have too many opportunities to do a lot of water stuff aside from swimming pools. Um, so yeah, so I, I think those were just what I did more was land-based physical fitness events sure. and, and the army mainly, looks at those most of the time. So I didn't really have much exposure to the water. So when I got in the water, um, 
you know, there were two main obstacles to be overcome. The first one is the physical aspect of actually being able to, um, you know, to move in that environment and to do, to accomplish tasks in that environment, which range from having to rescue um, a person who's drowning to, you know, having to swim a certain distance with, you know, tanks, uh, with your scuba tanks and, and with your equipment. Um, so just moving. And, and so there's, there's definitely physical challenges. And then also mental, the, the mental challenge of the water, I think is, is especially unique, particularly because the training uh, includes quite a bit of underwater activities where you have to hold your breath um, for periods that are longer than you would like to. And so I think there was, there's definitely a physical and a mental aspect. And I think the mental aspect is probably the one that, that I found to be the most challenging, but I was not particularly a gifted swimmer. And as actually, you know, I finished the school, I'm proud to say that I graduated, but I'm, you know, the records actually show that I was the slowest swimmer in the class hmm. uh, of my graduating class was, I think around 35 or 36. And uh, so I, I didn't win any medals. Let's just put it that way. As someone who is striving for a hundred percent in each thing and, and in it to win it and one of these five, ten, fifteen percent of special forces to be selected, um, was it hard to not excel? Was it hard to be the slowest swimmer? I mean, how does that how do you keep how do you keep swimming to quote finding Nemo? Yeah, no, it it was it was uh it was memorably painful and and embarrassing in many ways because you know just you know kind of just to to put it in frame you know these are you you're doing this uh training with a bunch of other special forces soldiers who you know who like the people who were in my class I thought were truly I mean they were all people that I looked up to and I thought they were they were incredible soldiers and it was I was really honored to be a part of that team and you know ultimately you go back and and you serve with those same guys and you are a team and there's, uh, in a special forces team where there's only 12 people, I mean, there's definitely an expectation that everyone has to do their part and pull their weight. And to be the slowest person on a given team, you there's definitely a feeling that uh, I felt like I was letting the, my teammates down every time. And, <laughs> and so I think there was that, I think it was, it was hard both from, you know, the, from the standpoint that I was good at a lot of other things, but not this, but it was also hard from the standpoint that I felt that I needed to, you know, I, I didn't feel like I could even maintain the level that I needed to many times just to, you know, not drag my teammates down. And that was, I think, the hardest mental thing about that. But, you know, it, it certainly was not for lack of effort. I, I remember uh, there was one particular day where, uh, we had a test. It was a it was a timed swim test, and we we're underwater, and you had to swim. I think it was two kilometers, uh, one, one and a half kilometers, something like that. No and, big deal. Yeah, and uh, and you had to do it at a certain time, and you also had to navigate. So you're you've got a little basically a giant compass. Uh, you've got like this. Uh, it's sort of like a kickboard. Okay. And then there's a compass that's on top of it, and then you're looking at this compass, and you're just finning, and you're basically just trying to maintain your bearing. And so the test is basically you have to swim the distance in a reg, you know, in under the required time, and then you've got to get to within a certain, you know, uh, within better. a you know certain distance from where you're supposed to go on the beach. Better be swimming in the right direction. You got to be swimming in the right direction. So I remember I was swimming on my test, and I, I, you know, I was already. It was looking like I was, I was kind of 
below the standards for most of the practice swims. My instructors, you know, said that I really need to step it up. And I, I remember just leaving it just, I, I swam as hard as I could, just kicking my legs furiously the entire time. And I'm breathing my partner. You do all your swims with a buddy um, for safety reasons. Mm. And uh, I remember I, my, my, my swim buddy described to me later that I was, I was yelling in my regulator, in my mouth, uh, you know, every five seconds or so just to try and just furiously swim as fast as I could. And I ended, I, I get to the beach and I'm just laying there exhausted. And I look, I open my eyes and I see the entire class who has already finished their event and gotten, had time to shower and get dressed. <laughs> and there I am. And <laughs> I had barely Bare, like literally by the skin of my teeth passed by the requirements of the test. Wow. And I just remember thinking like, wow, I literally just gave it everything I had and it was still barely enough. And so it was a very humbling experience. Um, <laughs> and, uh, one that I won't forget. That's, that's amazing. I really feel like I'm there with you. Like that's this, what, I mean, what, what I'm, I just have to ask, what was the reception? What is it? You know, good job. High five. Ye I mean, my classmates, my teammates, you know, and a lot of guys I'm still friends with, they were, sure. they were really excited. They're like, you made it, you know, okay. great job. <laughs> Thank goodness you're here, you know, and, and you know, the instructors, uh, some of the instructors kind of were like, you know, obviously they, they want everybody to, to do better than I did, okay. but they, they set the standards as such where I, I managed to sneak by by the skin of my teeth, but my peers were, were, were happy and appreciative and okay. congratulatory, thankfully. That's what I was hoping in this movie scene. I was like, yeah. are they cheering? Are they? Yeah, no, it was, it was good. <laughs> one, one thing I want to ask in particular about something we, something we've, we've discussed a little bit is the idea of combat. You told me earlier about a particular ambush. What happened? Yeah, I so the the ambush you're referring to. So this is going to rewind a little bit in my sure. career um, to when I was an infantry officer. I and, see. Uh, yeah, so this is early on. This is earlier. Yep. So when I was so just for context in my military career, I I saw most, if not all, of my combat in the in my military career as an infantry officer in Afghanistan. The first five years. In the first, yeah, it was really the first three years. Gotcha. Um, as a special forces officer, I, I deployed, but I, I definitely saw nothing to the same intensity that I did in Afghanistan. So, uh, so I was in northeastern Afghanistan in Kunar province, um, which is it's the area where I was. If you've seen the movie Restrepo, um, it's, it was pretty close to that area, so similar environment with the mountains. And it was about five months into our deployment. You know, we'd had a couple of uh, my my platoon and I. So I led a platoon of forty other soldiers. Um, and uh, and so that up to that point, we we'd had a couple small incidents of combat. When you say incidents of combat, are we exchanging fire? Or what's what's going on there? Yeah. So it, it, mainly, it would be just exchanging fire. So we would be on patrol one day, and you know there would be a sniper that would you know that would take some pot shots at us, or uh, there was an IED one time. So we got we got uh, one of our vehicles got blown up in an IED. Uh, actually, it was my vehicle that got blown up in an IED, <laughs> and then they they sh they took some pot shots at us. Um, there you, were, you were not in the vehicle. I was in the vehicle. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I, uh, <laughs> speaking, yeah, we talked, we were talking a little bit earlier about mild concussions. So I, I got my bell rung a little bit. Fortunately, the, uh, the, sure. I, the IED was, it was buried too deep. They had buried it too deep. And, uh, 
it, and the truck was uh, good help is so hard to find. Yeah, <laughs> thank thank goodness for me. Otherwise, we probably <laughs> wouldn't be here having this conversation. Sure. But uh, anyway, yeah, there was actually you know actually prior to this particular patrol, the story of which I'm about to tell, we had done one um, major. We called them an air assault, which is basically a helicopter, like where you you, you know. Um, we loaded up in helicopters and landed to seize a particular Taliban-held town in the Korangal Valley, which was kind of historically restive. Um, and so that particular time, which occurred about a week before this story that I'm about to tell here, there was, I mean, we we were, you know, riding in the helicopter and, uh, you know, getting ready to land, kind of didn't know whether it was going to be, you know, it was kind of a lot of excitement prior to that uh, there might be some, this might be a real you know, significant action, but I kind of was thinking to myself, uh, you know, I don't know, this might just be all overblown, you know, it's, this is probably nothing's going to happen because everyone's all excited about people it. People always so. get, you know, you're having a new military exactly. action, you got a helicopter, <laughs> yeah, people yeah, excited. Yeah, yeah, People were, you know, people, it, so anyway, I didn't know if it was going to be anything, and I remember we flew over this mountain range and getting ready to come in for a landing, and I start, I look out the window, and I, I see what I thought were shooting stars. Oh, I'm no. like, shooting stars, I'm like, that's kind of weird, and then I looked down and it's actually gunfire from the ground shooting at the helicopter that we're in. Um, it seems and, less uh, than ideal. Yeah, and I remember thinking at that moment, like, "Oh man, this is actually this is going to be the real deal." And uh, yeah, so, so we end up landing and uh, end up. Thank goodness our helicopter wasn't shot down. Obviously, which was my biggest fear at that point is like at least get me off this helicopter. So, mm. so we land, we get off the helicopter, and then you know, I led my, my soldiers, um, to basically, we had to, we had to cross a, a field and a river and then, and seize a small, um, a small outcropping with some buildings on it. And so there was a lot of exchanging of fire, uh, in that particular incident. So yeah, I mean, that was pretty intense. Um, so that's, that's sort of up what we had done up to that point. But then, so about a week after that, you know, we were back at the base where we had, you know, where we were stationed away from, you know, kind of this particular valley. And we were up uh, in our normal area of operations and um, walking around. And there was this, a building that kind of looked a little bit suspicious, kind of off, off of the road. And it was about maybe a quarter mile up the small little, the small little valley that, you know, if, if you can imagine, um, you know, the, the area where I was patrolling was this basically as a river valley in the mm. Hindu Kush mountains. And so you've got like this river that kind of winds down the middle of the valley. And then sure. you've got all these offshoot valleys that kind of like lead up to, you know, higher up on the mountains on either side. Right. Mm. And so there's a lot of little houses that kind of that the, that the, uh, the Afghans there built. And there was one particular, as we were patrolling along the main river valley, we kind of looked at it and said, Hmm, you know, this, this looks a little bit suspicious. And so I had, I had my, uh, I had my guys, you know, we all went up and, uh, and and went to go check it out. And when we got to the building, uh, we went. We basically walked right into an ambush. So, you know, we we could hear basically started perceiving all this machine gun fire. Bullets start, you know, hitting all around us. So this was not just a sniper taking pot shots. This is someone who actually knew what they were doing and was shooting at us. And so bullets start hitting all around us. Everyone dives for cover. And then there's, um, you know, a loud shout and kind of some painful screaming. And I, I look up and I see that one of my, uh, one of my senior non-commissioned officers or sergeants has been you know, shot in the foot and he's laying in the, laying in the middle of the, uh, kind of in the middle of this little clearing. So I, I get ready to go run over to him and, you know, these bullets 
just start flying over my head. And so I just hit the ground and, you know, there's, I literally am watching bullets splash all around uh, or hit, hit the ground around me. I'm behind this little low wall and I, I literally have to tuck my feet up to not mm. get, to not get shot. And, uh, and so I start getting on the radio to call for air support and to call for uh, fire support. And uh, long story short, we end up, you know, one of my other sergeants went and they, who was able to go get him out of the clearing and bring him back. And we were able to get everybody out of that ambush um, with a lot of difficulty. Um, and it could have, we were, we very nearly got trapped and, and it could have been quite a bit worse. And by worse, I mean, a lot more people could have been shot and wounded or killed. Um, so that was a really, that was a real, I think on, on the topic of resilience, I think this gets to, I think one of the, one of the bigger things that I, I wanted to comment on, on this topic, which is the, you know, there's physical resilience as far as never giving up in the face of a hard physical thing. And then I think the mental resilience of coming back from something that a decision that you made that resulted in somebody getting hurt or killed. And I looked back at the decisions that I made that day and the position that we found ourselves in and what happened to my squad leader, my sergeant, his name's uh, Pedro. And I, it was, it was extremely difficult for me to live with. Um, what happened to him? So he was shot in the foot. We managed to uh, to evacuate him, and he, uh, you know, he he ended up living. Uh, it was, it, you know, it was, it was. I'm not going to say a minor injury. I mean, his it shattered all the bones in his foot. He had to have four or five surgeries, and uh, you know, he can walk again, but he can't run or do a lot of the things that you know that everyone just takes for granted every day. So, I would say he's permanently disfigured. Um, in that way. And so I felt, I felt actually a, a very, you know, I felt the burden of responsibility for that um, in some ways and, you know, right or wrong. I think obviously there was a lot of factors that were at play that day, but, you know, I think my decision was one of them. So that, that for me at that time was really, really hard. And uh, that knowing that I had done something or that I had been party to someone who basically was partially disabled and could have been killed, and many more people could have been killed. It was it was a very hard thing to bear, and to look into the eyes of my soldiers after that, who were looking to me to lead them and to make the right decisions. And you know, after I had made what was not arguably an optimal decision, I really struggled with that. And I I really am thankful because I had a, a fantastic commander um, who had you know he had been in the Rangers for a long time, and he was a very experienced very professional, um, very smart guy. And, uh, and I confided in him and told him how I was feeling. And I, I, I sort of told him, you know, sir, I don't know if I can go back out there and, and look at my soldiers in the eye and, and, you know, tell them I have to do, or, you know, tell them to do, just give them orders. Um, mm. because I don't think they'll respect me. I don't know if I, I feel like I have the authority. Mm. And he said, Alex, you have a responsibility to your soldiers to not let one bad decision affect the leadership that you are going to, you know, that you have, you know, that you have to display now for them for every subsequent decision. Basically, you can't let this one bad decision taint all future decisions. It's like you have to think about all of those future decisions and all of the 
you know, all of the opportunities that you'll have to save their lives in various, by your decisions and the opportunities that you'll have to, you know, to make the right decisions. So by carrying that and letting it haunt you, you basically prolong the damage that has already been done. Mm. Whereas by taking it and learning from it and internalizing it, but not letting it drag you down like some kind of weight, uh, then you will actually be a better leader and, and you owe it to your soldiers to take that lesson, learn from it, and, and continue to be and just act like a leader from that point forward. Uh, I don't know if that makes sense, but that, that's, uh, that's basically what he told me. So basically it was, it was just the idea that, you know, coming back from failure, I think, is, is one of the hardest things that we can do. Um, and, and if I can say to let the past inform the present and the future, but to not control it. Yeah, I think absolutely. That's put put succinctly exactly what my commander was saying. And uh and so, you know, it's easy it's an easy thing to say and I think it's it's a hard thing to do. Um and that but that's was the biggest lesson of my of my military career as far as resilience. And I think that that mental resilience is so critical. And it's very tied to the same idea of redemption, I think. Mm. Um where we all make mistakes. Um we all do the best we can with what we know uh, at any given time. And despite that, you know, that we're going to come up short. And, and as a result, you know, there'll be consequences. But there is very, very, very rarely is there, is that the end of the road? In vast majority of circumstances, the vast majority of times, we'll have another chance to get up and try again and get up and try again and get up and try again. And as you said, to not let what happened in the past impact the impact, you know, to impact our decisions in the future and Mm. to make those decisions count. That's wonderful. Um, It's it's so interesting. We're, we're, we're nearing the close and I have so many more questions. I guess I'll ask just one or two. One is, um, how did you continue to find a sense of redemption and continue to get out there and not just as an infantry commander, but ultimately joining special forces, doing this crazy training? <laughs> maybe not crazy, maybe, maybe, uh, intense. I'm, I'm struggling for adjectives. So. No. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, thorough. Well, I, I'll tell you how I dealt with it as, sure. an, as an infantry commander. I, I, you know, and this from the, from a, a tactical perspective is maybe not the smartest thing, but I felt like one of the things that I had to do was to prove that I was not afraid. If that I, I thought that we needed to do something or go somewhere, I would be the first one to, you know, I'd be the, the first person to take that step down the path. Um, that I was always trying to lead from the front to set the example to my soldiers, to show them that, Hey, look, I'm not just being cavalier with your lives. Um, and I'm not, placing my own life above yours. Um, so that was one way in which I, in which I dealt with it. And I think to the second part of your question about pursuing special forces, I think getting back to my motivation for wanting to pursue all these hard challenges, I, I do think it's maybe related psychologically to this idea that I had to prove that I, I had something to prove to myself after that, um, to kind of prove to the soldiers that I would be leading um, that I wasn't afraid to you know, or that I had what it took 
to be their leader. And, and, you know, the proxy that I used for that was basically accomplishing all these hard training or, or being part of an elite unit. Um, so, yeah, but I think what I, one of the things I, I really want to leave you with and I, that I've, I've learned mm-hmm. and, and to kind of wrap up is, you know, these lessons are really, really central to who I am and resilience is probably, if I count all the values and all the things that I've learned in my military career that I feel like define me, it's, it's those lessons um, that center on resilience and coming back from failure. And if there's one value that I could, you know, if my son, when he grows up and listens to this, I, if there's one thing that I, I hope he can take away is, is knowing the, or, or that I feel that it is just so central to being, living a successful uh, or living a, a full and successful life. Um, because ultimately there's not many things, you know, there's a lot of things in life that we don't control. Um, you don't control whether or not someone has a machine gun and inside of a building. <laughs> right. Or, you know, and even beyond that, you know, we don't get to choose at, at birth, you know, how tall we are. Or we don't get to choose how smart we're going to be. And we don't get to choose how talented we're going to be at all these different things. And we, you know, not everyone is created equal in that way. But everyone, every single person has it within themselves to show courage in the face of you know, the fear of failure and then in, in the face of actual failure to stand up and try again and to stand up and try again and to stand up and try again. And failing to try again, you have another chance to stand up and try again. And it's that courage that equalizes every single person. And everyone has the capacity to do that. Mm. And, uh, and so I think that's something that is really special about the quality of resilience and being able to show uh, grit and perseverance in the face of failure. Thank you so much. I think we'll I think we'll close there. That was just so. I feel like you you've summarized the whole thing for us. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. Well, we're done with the pod. The pod. There's no more podcast now. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it's it's a really. I mean, I, I think we've talked I, I, a couple times now, and I, I really enjoy talking with you, Kevin, and 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 hearing some of your experiences too, and. And being able to uh, record this podcast with you was my great honor. Thanks a lot for letting me be here. Thanks a ton for joining us. All right, everyone, that's uh, that's another another episode of Up Up. Uh, Thanks for being with us today. Uh, And thank you again, Alex Pruden, for, uh, for joining us.